If you ever want to hear me totally geek out, then guys, you got to listen to this part two, this supercharged episode featuring the neuroscience powerhouse herself, Tara Swore. She's given us powerful insights on how sex, stress, and attraction start in the mind and play out in radical ways affecting our love lives. Guys, I I hope you can hear it in my voice. I literally didn't want this interview to end. When I had to say goodbye and do the sign-off, I was like, can you please just stay for another like eight hours because I have so many questions to ask you. That's how powerful I thought this episode was and why you guys absolutely need to listen to this. It turns out that, guys, what a surprise. We're not actually going crazy women release different hormones from men and we respond to life differently and that makes let's say relationships pretty hard if you're not actually aligned so whether you take notes on how to improve an existing romance discovering reasons you should leave or just trying to not repeat the same crap in your next relationship guys homie i got you covered in this two-part episode so let's not waste another second let's dive right in to part two with my girl dr tara swore on women of impact Thank you for correcting me. I never thought of it. I, it's, it seems like an, it seems from the outside and not understand the, you know, the brain um, that it was more of an addiction. But I totally understand your the spectrum of things. And then you actually mentioned where like you go into the stalking mode. I've seen amazing, well put together women go off the rails mm. if they've been heartbroken and all of a sudden they're stalking or they're doing, I call them drive-bys, where it's like, let me just see if his car's there. Yeah. Um, or if they're in a relationship and they're worried about, are they cheating? And then all of a sudden they, they become a different person. What actually is happening there? That is to do with psychological safety. Well, I, ha- I have to separate the two because if you're in a relationship and you have suspicions then what you're doing is to maintain your psychological safety, to like give yourself data and evidence about whether you should trust that person or not. Um, the one about after a relationship has broken down would be more about the inability to accept that fact, the inability to regulate your emotions around it, and therefore difficulty letting go. So I think they're two. They're, they're definitely mm. in a subset of things together, but they're slightly different. So one is to do with not let, being able to let go, and the other one perhaps is more to do with being able to let go if you get the right evidence. So it's checking: should I mm. let go? And it may be followed by the former state, in that if you do have to end the relationship because of trust issues, you would still be heartbroken. And you might still want to go and check if their car's there or someone else's car is there. But I think they're just, they've got slightly different motivations in the brain. Um, and it kind of, you know, it makes sense because if you've been in a relationship with someone, you've either lived with them or spent a lot of time with them, and suddenly that changes, it destabilizes your whole just day to day, you know, from the minute that you wake up. Because either you've gone from waking up with that person to waking up alone. Or you've gone from waking up thinking, I might see him this weekend, to I'm never going to see him again. So it's actually okay to have those temporary periods of not being yourself and kind of losing your ability to behave in the way that you normally do. But it just can't go on for too long. And I remember, you know, when I was like first getting divorced, and because I was a psychiatrist at the time. And I'd had patients on the ward who had like tried to kill themselves because their relationship had ended. I remember thinking, if I didn't know all the things I know now, I can see why you could end up on a psychiatric ward. Um, 
so it's very interesting that I've, you know, seen kind of the most broken result of a, you know, a relationship ending or a cheating happening and been through a version of that myself and really understood like how that can happen. Mm. But thank goodness had the emotional regulation to like not go down that path. But it really made me actually so non-judgmental about how difficult that is and how if you don't have the tools within yourself or the right support around you, it can spiral out of control. Um, I think that even in terms of like time bound, that even like very, very supportive friends will let you have that period of time where you're just like crying and talking about it all the time and wanting to message him or whatever. But there is going to come a time where people are going to say, you know what, you're better than this. Like you can start to move forward now. Other people will like be so keen to be with you. And, and that's what that support circle helps. And so, you know, I really feel for people that don't have that because it's very hard to navigate all these things by ourselves. We as humans aren't meant to deal with these things by ourselves. We're meant to be part of a tribe. So is it having people around you that can help you get out of that and then also having the ability to emotionally regulate? Yeah, so absolutely, you know, building up yourself, the like emotional regulation, and that can happen through journaling, through therapy, through talking with friends, um, through like introspection. Um, but the circle that you have around you Bring it back to everything else that you've picked up today. You know, the words that people say, the examples that they give you. Um, you know, if if you have friends around you that are saying, yeah, well, you know, why not just like text him and see if he replies versus friends who are saying like, you know what, it's time to put this behind you. Mm -hmm. And there's a time and a place for both of those. But it's just being very conscious that you've got the right advice around you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that all because I think that so many of us will beat ourselves up over an action where it may not align with the person that we want to be. Mm. And so um, that can trigger, you know, the shame. It's like, I can't believe that I acted like that. And then that shame mm -hmm. then can just spiral down instead of giving yourself the grace. That's like, yes, this is actually a moment in time. I'm having an emotion. Mm -hmm. This is very valid. This is very reasonable. I won't stay here, mm -hmm. but right now not to feel the shame and that you're just freaking human. Yeah, I think thinking of it as temporary. Um, you just made me think of a really funny analogy. I don't know why, but I was like, you know, that's breakup Barbie. Bre <laughs> breakup Barbie can be in your life for a certain period of time, but not forever. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And you actually also mentioned the um, psychological trust. So talk to me about the, the power of trust and actually the connection of trust and um, being able to orgasm. <laughs> so that phrase is called psychological safety and it comes from how we existed in tribes when we lived in the cave. So when we lived in the cave, if you mistakenly let someone else into your tribe, that could bring in disease. It could let lead to like theft. Um, um, you know, it was a risk. So we had to like keep our tribes like together and separate from mm. different tribes. And in those days, the way that we recognized our tribe was through skin color, hair color, hair texture, eye color, and eye shape mostly. Mm. So it's very racial, right? Um, so these days it's not based on that, although that is still a part of it, but 
When we meet a new person, we actually peg them on up to 150 identified stereotypes. Whoa! Um, and that will now, in the modern world, include things like social class, how much you earn, educational level, which sports team you support, <laughs> which political party you vote for, um, physical attractiveness, and, and like many other and thing, obvious things like age and gender and and race. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it doesn't mean you have to be the same to be in the tribe, but but you know, you'll make a picture of someone and think, okay. This is someone who's about the same age as me, who's a woman that comes from London. <laughs> you see where I'm going? Um, gotcha. <laughs> you're in my trial. <laughs> um, so, so the safety issue came from the fact that you had to stick together as a tribe to be safe and any external element was, was a potential danger. So now it's based on a wider range of, of stereotypes. So, even if you don't match on those stereotypes, once you've become in partnership or in tribe or whatever, there is a level of trust, okay? Mm. Now, the risk of that being broken, and it's not just in relationships, it's losing your job is a, is a psychological safety factor because mm. obviously that's what you rely on to pay for your life. So your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your team. Um, we're constantly, our brain is constantly looking out for threats to our survival. That is its main job. It wants us to live long enough to reproduce, sadly. And so to achieve that, we have to sleep, eat, be hydrated, be healthy, be fertile. That is all our brains actually care about. That's how basic we actually are. Mm -hmm. But we are living a richer life than that. Um, but in terms of what the brain is doing, all it, you know, its main job is, is there a threat to my survival right now? When I meet a new person, could this person like somehow threaten my survival? As soon as I've decided that that's not the case, then I can think about, okay, do I want to trust you? Do I want to be friends with you? Do I want to like bring you into my circle? Um, so that's, that's what psychological safety is. And then bringing in trust and orgasm. So obviously you can have an orgasm with somebody that you don't necessarily know if you can trust because you can have a one night stand. Mm -hmm. Um, but oxytocin does underlie both love and trust and orgasm, childbirth, breastfeeding. Mm. So hormones and neurotransmitters have more than one, um, they can underlie more than one pathway. So for example, dopamine, which most people will recognize as the reward chemical. So that's released when you get something that you like. So like eating a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. Um, also underlies motivation. So it's the hormone that will drive you to get, to move towards a goal that you want to achieve. But it's also very much part of the movement system. So in different pathways of the brain, dopamine is doing different things. Um, so let me just give you some really uh, tangible examples. So when dopamine is reduced in a certain pathway in the brain, that's when you can see symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease is a movement disorder. That's what I did my PhD in. And it's reduction of dopamine in the nigrostriatal pathway of the brain. In schizophrenia, you have an increase in dopamine in the mesolimbic pathway of the brain. So forget the terms necessarily, but they're just in different places mm -hmm. in the brain, same hormone going up or down. So with oxytocin, when it's... Um, underlying an orgasm, 
it's having it's it's you know working differently to how it does when it's underlying breastfeeding or childbirth or trust or you know mm-hmm. obviously love and orgasm tend to be more connected but yeah so just you know there's this there's so many systems and subsystems in the brain and they've got all sorts of different chemicals like racing around in them we try to simplify it by saying oxytocin is for bonding but it's actually way more complicated than that but you know, it would go on to say that you're much more likely to have more orgasms and better orgasms, certainly as a woman, if you're in a trusting relationship, um, than if you are having serial non-trusting relationships. Mm. Yes, thank you. Because this, I've spoken about this, you know, behind the scenes with a lot of like, you know, my girlfriends Mm. and we've all spoken about like, oh, the second that we have the trust, Mm -hmm. it's like multiple orgasms. You know, um, I was with a guy before my husband and I didn't orgasm once. And now my husband is like, you know, (laughs) a lot. So, um, so I've just spoken to a lot of women and I had no idea why. And I couldn't, you know, I do kind of, uh, the safety element, I think, is a big deal because especially as a woman, you're just you're giving yourself over so completely mm-hmm. that you were leaving yourself completely susceptible to so much. Mm-hmm. But I didn't understand what actually was happening in the body or the brain for that to be true. Mm. And look, let's be realistic, because I think people will comment on this if we don't, mm. which is that it's perfectly possible to have an amazing orgasm or multiple orgasms mm. with a complete stranger. Mm-hmm. It is possible. Um, but in terms of evolutionary wiring and long-term satisfaction it's just a different you know it's like watching an advert instead of watching a movie (laughs) I I just made that up that was good that was good I am so obsessed with understanding the brain and evolution because anytime I just, I'm going to go to myself, anytime I don't understand myself, why am I doing this? Why am I adding, like, it doesn't serve me. I go back to, oh, it must be an evolution. Mm. You know, something's happened back in the caveman days that's Mm. led me to feeling like this. It's a different world, Lisa. doesn't mean you should be like this. But at least once I understand where it comes from, Mm -hmm. it allows me to just take that and then go, cool, now I get it. Now how do I change? Because, you know, if I want to try and be better, improve, um, um, and yeah, like it just, the orgasm thing was definitely one of the things that I was like, when you come on, I'm definitely asking you this one. Um, Can I just say something? Please. I know I'm the guest, but I think that sound bite from you of whenever I'm feeling a certain way, I go back to evolution and I say, Lisa, it's a different world now. What do I want to do with this? Mm. If that is the one thing that people take away from this conversation, I think that is potentially life-changing. Wow. Coming from you, thank you. I think you've dropped so many bombs in this interview that that isn't accurate, but I appreciate that the, that's very sweet. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier about um, if you've come from a family where you've seen divorce, then it lets you know that, oh, divorce is okay. Um, Can you, I just caveat that yeah. slightly? So not if that's um, very unusual. It, if... So what I think what I actually said was that there's a generation, a younger generation mm. now where they say like, oh, most of my friend's parents are divorced. Yes. So that's the fact that it's multiple cases. If you come from a divorce, of course, it's also normalised it for you. But if all of your friend's parents are still together, mm. you're more likely to be traumatised by that than actually normalising it. Oh. So, so you're potentially likely to say, I don't want to do what my parents did. I want to be like my friend's parents. Mm. So... I think it's more to do with the number of cases with that. 
thank you for correcting me because I think that's actually super powerful mm -hmm. because I came from a divorced parent. Okay. But back in, I'm 44, so back in the day, divorce wasn't common. I was no. the only kid in yeah. my entire school that I knew. Actually, yeah. I knew one other girl. Yeah. Um, she never knew her dad. But other than that, every other family was together. And mm. so I remember when I met my husband, the one thing I was like, we we don't even say the word divorce in the house. Mm -hmm. Like we call it the D word. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like Voldemort where you just don't say it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you don't repeat it in the house because we don't want to ever... Um, have that as an, I mean, look, again, if we were profoundly unhappy and we worked and we did everything we possibly could, mm -hmm. we pride being happy as individuals. So mm -hmm. yes, we would get divorced, mm -hmm. but like we never really talk about it because we don't ever want that to go into our conscious minds. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much mm -hmm. for correcting that. Um, and I've heard... And actually on that point, mm -hmm. I have a very old friend who is actually a devout Catholic. So that's not really a word that but she got into a really, really bad habit for a while of every time she had an argument with her husband saying we should get divorced. And they actually were on the brink of divorce. But I remember saying to her, you've got to stop saying that. Like, unless you mean it, mm. you can't just be saying that every time you're having an argument. You can't be saying it to your own brain. And he also can't unhear what you've said. So I do think it, it is a word, and there are many words, but, you know, that is a word that one does have to be very careful. Yeah, and then I assume, going back to something you said earlier, then also that threat, the fear, mm. like you're really kind of solidifying that, mm. and that's not bringing you guys together, that's not creating no, no, a bond. No, not at all, no, it's definitely not bringing people together. But I think also it becomes, like, you know, it can be weaponized as a word, and then it can be actually made, like, really weak because it's used so much. Mm. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easier easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at 
every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. A thousand percent. Yeah. The more you say, the more it's like, uh-huh. Heard you say that 30 times. Yeah. You're not really going to divorce me. No. So yeah, totally true. Um, so I've heard you say pregnant mothers, if they're really stressed, um, then the child can be, have the stress hormone. Mm-hmm. I was wondering the same about if the mother is truly in love and has like the, 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 the lovely, the hormones that, oh my God, this is my husband and I'm pregnant. Does that then um, impact the child as well? And the reason why I ask is going back to how was I born? Like I look at like when I had gut issues, I looked back at my ancestors and I was like, look at my mom's gut, look at my grandmother's gut. Mm-hmm. Like how did that all happen? So that again, just so I can understand mm-hmm. and then act in accordance. And so, yeah, when I heard you say about the stress, I was like, oh, is it the same thing with love? That is such a great question, but I need to break it down into about four or five parts. Please do. So I think what you're asking about is involves epigenetics, generational trauma, potentially, how the microbiome is passed from mother to child, what happens in utero, and um, how hormones transfer from the mother to the mm. baby. So yeah, five. Let's do it, girl. <laughs> um so let's, I'll take them kind of like the, short, the shortest one first. So obviously the um, placenta is the blood supply for the baby, but the mother's blood is running through the placenta. Mm-hmm. So everything the mother eats, you know, if, okay, let's again give a very tangible example to make it easy to understand. If the mother's a heroin addict, is the baby getting heroin? Yes. Yes, yeah, exactly. So if the mother's stressed or the mother's in love, is the baby getting cortisol mm. or oxytocin? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what we do tend to see is in, even in very alpha women, they tend to become a lot more like cuddly and dependent on the husband when they're pregnant because mm. they have so much oxytocin wow. going around. So in the absence of stress, and, and let's be very clear, you cannot help what happened in your generations before you. You cannot necessarily help how stressed you feel when you're pregnant. Mm. Um, so all everything that I'm going to say is for you to have that awareness, like you mentioned about evolution, and then to give you tips and tools for what you can do about yeah. it. So, um, yeah, this is the reason that people play like classical music to their baby and like go to like prenatal yoga classes and like massage their belly with oil and stuff like that. It's, it's to induce all of that beautiful oxytocin mm-hmm. and, you know, to um, be with the the father of the baby or like other family members or close friends and like you know experience that joy of this of what's coming all of that absolutely is inducing oxytocin and baby's definitely going to feel that and so okay how the gut microbiome passes from mother to baby so your gut microbiome is 
partly genetic, so you will be getting it from your mother and your father. But in the birthing process, when the baby um, comes out of the birth canal, it swallows a lot of vaginal fluids. Also, if you've seen childbirth, I don't know if you have, but... Not in real life, but... I have seen it in real life because oh, wow. when I was a medical student, you had to deliver, you had to watch five and deliver five. So there is quite a lot of mixing of, of, of feces um, at the birth canal. So the baby can swallow some of that too. That's actually a really good thing because oh. that seeds the gut microbiome. Mm. Um, and then breastfeeding, you also get um, immune cells from your mother's breast milk, which seeds your gut microbiome. So in fact, if you have a cesarean, they actually take fluids from the mother's birth canal and swab it into the eyes, nose and mouth of the baby to improve its immune function by seeding its mm. microbiome. And before we had that practice, children who were born through cesarean section or who weren't breastfed had um, the risk of, of you know, less strong immunity. So it's actually really important that that happens. So if your mother's gut microbiome was compromised or you had a cesarean birth and you didn't get swabbed with the mother's fluids, or you didn't get breastfed, that does have an impact on you in future. But again, that can be mitigated by a really good diet, by fermented foods, by probiotics, um, by reduction of stress and other healthy lifestyle factors. Everything that's good for you is good for your gut. So exercise, sleep, mindfulness, varied diet, hydration, etc. What's then the impact on a microbiome and the the love hormone or how you feel and then bonding with people? Is mm -hmm. that That's a really good question. We normally answer that by talking about the effect of stress on the gut, right? So mm. if you have high levels of... So the gut and the brain communicate with each other through the vagus nerve, which is the longest nerve um, that goes from your brain to your gut, other nerves, hormones cytokine messaging, which is other chemical messages that go into the blood um, and communicate between the gut and the brain. So if you're stressed, we know that it leads to things like bloating and leaky gut and you know, potentially IBS, other autoimmune diseases, indigestion, reflux, etc. Change in bowel habit. Um, if you're not stressed, so if we think of oxytocin and cortisol and seesaw, mm. then usually they're kind of mutually exclusive of each other. So if you're not stressed, then maybe you're neutral. But if you're also happy and trusting and in love, then yeah, that's going to have a beneficial impact on your gut microbiome, your immunity, your skin, your hormones, everything. I mean, that's, it's really, stress is bad for all of those things and oxytocin is good for all of those things. And that's why the loneliness epidemic is such an issue. Because it's not just that oh, you know, I'm bored at the weekend. It's your immune function is affected. Your gut microbiome is affected. Your skin is affected. Um, your sleep can be affected and your longevity is affected. I mean, you know, your risk of having a heart attack is higher if you're, if you're chronically lonely. Yes, crazy. Yeah. So generational trauma and epigenetic trauma. So generational trauma refers to an incident that happened in a particular generation that then does have knock-on effects on future generations. So a group that was marginalized in a particular generation will tend to not only themselves have felt, but pass on more sort of psychosocially things like you're marginalized, you're, you're on the outside, you're not part of the tribe, you're alone. Mm. 
Um, so those are emotions that get passed on. But epigenetic trauma is when something actually affected you physically, either very shortly prior to conception or in the first, second or third trimester of pregnancy. And the biggest examples of this, and there's probably a bit of crossover between the two types of trauma, are Holocaust survivors and Dutch famine survivors. And slavery is another example. The Vietnam War probably like goes across both of those types of trauma. But with epigenetic trauma, it actually switches on or off certain genes. Most of the research has looked at stress and resilience. So if your forefathers went through a very stressful period, this can either make you more anxious or more resilient. And that can change in the next generation and then in the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. And it's quite an emerging field. It's a bit more established now, but we don't exactly know why it can lead to a good or a bad outcome and in which generation and why. Mm. But we know that there's all sorts of combinations and permutations. Um, so basically, you know, if let's say you're a great grandchild of a Holocaust survivor and your grandparents didn't have a very good diet and your mum was stressed during pregnancy. I mean, you can see how there's all mm. sorts of different, you know, factors that can play into this. But also what's going on in the household when the baby is in utero has much more of an effect than we ever thought before. And then obviously like the first few months and year of life, kind of what's going on in terms of stress and stuff. A lot of, you know, my friends who've got young kids now say about the difference between their first child and their second child, mm. how, you know, they were so ill-equipped for like the sleeplessness and having this like vulnerable, you know, new human in their life. And second time round, they're a lot more chilled and just the difference. Mm. Um, and, and not just in terms of parenting, but for a lot of people, you know, let's say in the last five to 10 years, we've all just understood a lot more about how to be healthy. So we may have changed a lot of our practices mm. and that may have been different for the first child than it is now for the second child. Um, so it's really complex and a lot of it is out of our hands, like it happened before. So the main thing to understand is that you can yourself and teach your child how to regulate your emotions better. That's mostly through mindfulness, but it's also through not having high expressed emotions in the household. A lot of immigrant families like yours and mine, a lot of high expressed emotion in the household. Um, and Why is that? Because they've gone through so much hardship? Yeah, usually, yeah. And it may be cultural. So you know, Greek and Indian families tend to be quite expressive like anyway, even if they've stayed in the home mm, country. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you have, you know, made a difficult emigration, it, it could have like added to that. Um, and then, you know, not being in a place where you have access to like the foods and the spices that are like for your, good for your gut mm. microbiome and, you know, of your culture maybe to a certain extent, loss of language or having to speak another language. Mm -hmm. All those things are really stressful. So even as I'm saying those things, I'm just thinking it is so, so multifactorial and there isn't like a human alive that could work all of those things out and try and do everything that you can to mitigate them. So it's really about being present and like in every minute decision of the day, trying to make the healthiest one or the best one or making it for the right reasons at least um, and understanding that you're going to make mistakes but that's human and that there's always something that you can do to lessen 
the consequence of that mm. if you choose to. Thank you so much for breaking that down. Um, the reason, and I think I said this already, but the reason why that's so powerful is you even have people in the same family that think completely differently mm. or act differently. One person has more trauma than the other, mm -hmm. even if they um, have had somewhat of the same upbringing. And I think that there's so much complexity mm -hmm. to everything that you just said, to the brain, to the microbiome, to everything that... First step is don't beat yourself up and don't shame yourself. Yeah. And again, if I understand, now I really do release the shame. Like, it's like, oh, well, it was my great, great grandmother, you know, and not to blame a poor woman, but like, <laughs> but again, it just allows me to know, okay, this is just how you are. It's genetics. It's the microbiome. It's this, it's this what happened. Now, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. How are you going to make sure this doesn't then become your, your destiny? Mm -hmm. Because I'm such a person of, I want the knowledge and I want to have my own power. I don't want to give my power away mm -hmm. to circumstances. And mm -hmm. so knowing it mm -hmm. now gives me the foundation to be able to then go, okay, now how am I going to build a stronger house? Yeah, and I think here I should probably mention the word neuroplasticity. Mm. Um, so it's everything that you just said, but it's, you know, people might listen to you and say, well, it's okay for Lise to say that because, you know, she's got her life sorted and um, she's got a lot of help around her. So she's got the luxury of maybe saying, I can think about mm. how I, you know, rethink my choices. Um but I want everyone to know that it's possible and I want everyone to know how much potential they have in their brains. And it is this thing called neuroplasticity, which is the fact that the brain remains flexible throughout our lives. And so it is the reason that we can change the way that we think, the way that we behave, the things that we believe, the relationship patterns that we have at any age, at any stage of life and with any mindset. So even if you are one of those sceptical people that thinks, you know, you can't teach, teach an old dog new tricks or a leopard can't change its <gasps> yeah. spots or I'm not going to change now. This is the way that I've always been. Please just take away, just put like a seed into your brain, this idea that actually you can change. I mean, it's the reason that I was telling you my podcast is called Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Mm -hmm. Tara, because you literally can change. You just have to want to. and there is this amazing ability of the brain to make new connections, overwrite old pathways, even to grow like baby cells into like fully formed cells and like create whole new pathways in your brain. And all of that underwrites your beliefs, your thoughts and your actions. And those are the three things that make your life what it is, mm. basically. I love that you said that and it I guess it doesn't dawn on me that people may not know my story but my you know my father grew up in a tiny village in the mountains of Cyprus they didn't have running water and the toilet was a hole in the floor for mm. him that was my dad mm. so that's literally just one generation mm -hmm. my mum was brought up in a convent with nuns so that's you know again just one generation um, my mum was um, growing up she was borderline anorexic I was the person that um, when I said about the, the, the addiction to the highs and the lows mm -hmm. I was I was actually speaking for myself because my last, my boyfriend before my husband, mm -hmm. that was the relationship we had. It was very turbulent. He was very verbally abusive to me. Mm -hmm. I had zero self-esteem. Mm -hmm. I was bullied and teased for my looks. And so that's why I believe. I was like, okay, I've got a choice. Either I accept that, oh my God, this is my life. But the, that horror of going, this is going to be your life with this guy in this turbulent relationship, always feeling like this. Or, and I don't think I had the words for it back then, mm -hmm. 
But it's like, what life do you actually want? Mm -hmm. And that became so powerful to me, so empowering to me Mm -hmm. that I've then since lived my life like that. And, you know, going from a stay-at-home wife for eight years, believing that I was, you know, being brought up Greek Orthodox, that's what's expected of me, Mm -hmm. to then coming out of that, telling my husband I don't want to be a stay-at-home wife anymore. Actually, I want to build a business. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, getting in front of the camera, which I would never have thought I would do five years ago, has all been an evolution evolution of yeah. me taking the facts of my heritage, my mum's microbiome and everything, and then saying, but now how do I change? What is that life I want? How do I reinvent myself? Mm. And you're such an amazing example of it. And, you know, I think it's not always, e- I, I'm almost tempted to ask you, like, what was that moment? What changed? But no. we don't always know. Yeah. And it's also not always helpful for other people because it's not going to be the same for them. Mm-hmm. But just knowing that that's what you've come from, that's what you personally went through and how much you have turned that around. If that is not enough for people to just at least question themselves, you know, I don't know what is. Mm. Um, And I love, I I mean, I think that... And I have a, you know, not the same, but a similar trajectory, Mm -hmm. if you like. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, reason 732 why I freaking adore you and I'm loving this conversation so much is to give people the knowledge and that's why it's so freaking important mm. to me because to your point don't you can't teach you know old dogs new tricks i was brought up with that idea that that's what i was told by everybody around mm. me and so the idea that neuroplasticity exists and so anything whether you're 60 i'm looking right into the camera whether you're 60 70 years old my mum lost 120 pounds in her late 60s wow she went from the woman that was saying i can't i'm too old to then changing her mindset. You want to talk about what happened? She just changed her mindset. She was like, oh, hang on a minute. If I decide that I want to get up and walk, even if it's raining outside in England, I'm going to, she actually did this, drove to a grocery store and walked five miles in a grocery store because it was raining so much. And in her 50s or 40s or 30s, she used to tell herself that she wasn't worthy enough or that she wasn't good enough or she didn't deserve or she couldn't change. And so when I can see that in my mum and still now she's in her 70s and she walks over five miles a day even now, like that idea if I could pass on from like these interviews and being with women like yourself, like the amount of people that we can possibly change the way they think about themselves is just so beautiful and gorgeous. But you actually said that um, if you're journaling or, you know, um, I think you said to do visualization even sometimes before you go to bed. And because sometimes you can, if you're scrolling on your phone and you're seeing things that are giving you either a cortisol rush or something that becomes, you know, is negative, you're going to go to bed thinking about that. Um, And so I was wondering if Um, even with like the manifestation of like, okay, this is what I want. What do I have to do to get it? Would that then be true if you were looking for somebody to love in your life? Like, would you want to watch like a romantic movie or have like a photo of like, you know, the the perfect person that you would like to be with? Um, So... So I wouldn't want to use the example if you're scrolling on your phone and causing cortisol because I'd rather talk about the Tetris effect. Did you play Tetris on a Game Boy? I did, of course. Because we're about the same (laughs) age, so yeah. yeah. So if you remember that, you had the Game Boy. I can't believe I was allowed to have it in bed when I was a kid, but I was. Nice. <laughs> um, so you'd be trying to fit the bricks into the shapes and you'd see the bricks falling and you'd move them around. And then when you had to put the Game Boy off and go to sleep, when you closed your eyes, you literally could see the bricks falling because it's in, it made an impression on your retina and through your optic nerve, it's gone into your brain. 
And then because that's the last thing you look at when you're asleep, when you're asleep, it's actually like having an effect on your subconscious. So be really mindful what you look at last thing. So you said a photo of the person that you want to be with, but I have my vision board next to my bed. And um, so in the one I made in 2015, which was for 2016, had an engagement ring on it. Um, and that was after, like I said, years of saying, I will never, ever, ever get married again. So I started to kind of try to shift that, but didn't really believe it. And then eventually I was like, come on, Tara, you've made this work for business. Let's see. Let's just see if you can make it work for love. And so it was like big, bold, you know, engagement ring. Um, but the thing I would say about the romantic movies, I'm hesitant about that one because I worry that it could heighten for people what they don't have. Oh. So I think maybe pe people need to make that judgment call for themselves. But a vision board won't do the same, that thing? On the vision board, you have intentionally put onto it what you want. Mm. When you watch a, a romantic movie, I just think about the conflicting emotions of watching it and thinking, yeah, that's what I want, but really realizing that you don't have it. Whereas on the vision board, it's very intentional. I have decided that this is what I want. What I ask people to do is to look at it regularly, preferably daily, to visualize it being true and to give gratitude for the fact that it has become true already. Because then you're moving your brain from cortisol to oxytocin because oxytocin is love and trust and joy and excitement. So gratitude builds that up. I just worry that a romantic movie could induce feelings of envy. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. So I think you would have to watch one for yourself and see how it makes you feel and then decide if that's right for you or not. Mm, that's yeah. fair. Um, when you just said um, the envision that it's possible and then be grateful that it's true, even if it's not true, yeah? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And isn't that like kind of false hope? It's really a practice. So it's not, it's not kidding yourself that it's true, but it's sitting there in the visualization. So let's say it's like a dream home. So you close your eyes and you would see yourself walking through that home and you would picture the details of it. And given the fact that my manicure completely matches your cushions and your mugs, I, I would be seeing, you know, pink soft furnishings mm. and fluffy <laughs> stuff. Um, no, but you know, it's almost like imagine yourself walking through that house, smelling it, touching the textures, like seeing the, you know, whatever... Um, art or kind of wood that you've chosen that you really love, like what your bedroom looks like, what your bathroom looks like. And, you know, it's almost like visualizing it in a delicious way and then just feeling so grateful that that could even be possible. And, you know, if you're able to like feel it, that it's true at the time that you're visualizing it, just give gratitude at that time. What is it actually then doing? Because the thing like I over time have really understood and embodied the, you know, if you don't believe it, then you won't act in mm -hmm. accordance. But if mm -hmm. you believe it, then you will act in mm -hmm. accordance. But I do struggle with, you know, um, oh, what was that? The very original... The secret. The secret, thank you. <laughs> where it's like, visualize a parking space and you will get it. Like, I just kind of dismissed it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so help me understand what that is actually doing to the brain and why it actually works. Because if it's super powerful, I want to make sure yeah, that yeah. I hear it. Um, but right now it doesn't feel true. It just feels like I'm envisioning something that may not be. And let me just mm -hmm. caveat, mm -hmm. when we were growing Quest, when Quest was nothing, mm -hmm. we were struggling. I'm in, in freaking ugly hairnet all day. No <laughs> one's buying a protein bar. Me and my husband would drive around Beverly Hills yeah. and we would look at the houses. But that was more of as an incentive to be mm -hmm. like, okay, keep working hard and you could get this. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between that and what you're talking about? Okay. First of all, really valid question. Um, and then I'll give you the brain part and then I'll give you the next part, which you've kind of answered in your question, which is amazing. So, um, so you're doing one thing which I've already mentioned, which is the practice of gratitude moves your brain into that attachment state, which is correlated with the bonding hormone oxytocin mm -hmm. and the emotions of love, trust, joy and excitement, rather than the stress state, which is the fear, anger, disgust, shame, sadness, which correlates with cortisol. Um, what you're also doing is giving your brain a practice run. So do you remember how I said your brain is constantly looking out for threats to your safety? Mm. Anything new is a threat to your safety. So if you have imagined yourself dating or engaged or married or in relationship or in a different home or in a different job or running your business, just by imagining it, you are actually activating the same brain pathways that would be activated by you doing that. So then when it comes to going on a date or um, you know, making a real estate inquiry, or it's, quitting your job and changing or, careers. Yeah, or quitting your job. It's not 100% new to your brain because you've visualised it. And in a much smaller scale, if I was giving a big lecture, I would like to go and see the room before I actually have to step into it to give the lecture. So let's say I arrive in LA the night before and I'm speaking the next day. I would always say, can I go and see the room that the audience is going to be in? And so obviously with you, I looked on your Instagram at clips of you interviewing other people. So I kind of knew what the setup was. It is actually a coincidence about the nails, but I wonder how much I primed uh, my brain. Yeah, sub yeah. subconsciously. Because I didn't do it on purpose, but I wonder if it was subconscious. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is what you said about you and Tom, which is that it cannot be an unrealistic thing that you make no action towards. You were wearing a hairnet and working like a dog. You weren't sitting at home visualising mm. Beverly Hills mansions, were you? No. No, exactly. So it can't be something like, you know, you are in a job that pays a certain amount of money that currently is never going to afford to buy a Beverly Hills mansion and you put a Beverly Hills mansion on your vision board. It could be that you put owning your own home on your vision board Um so it does have to be somewhat realistic. It can't be a fantasy. And also, I actually don't call them vision boards. I call them action boards mm. because you have to be doing something, I say, every day, getting yourself towards that goal. Even if it's getting up in the morning and going to your job whilst you're planning to like start up your own business. You know, it's kind of, and I'll give you my own example, which absolutely isn't for everyone, but it is my example of that intention and that really strong desire which is that when I gave up medicine, and obviously I was getting divorced at the same time, I was, you know, my husband helped me out as he had promised to um, until I didn't need him to anymore. But people did say to me, Tara, you could go and do a one weekend shift at the hospital and you'd be able to pay your rent and your bills. Because I was getting to the point where I wasn't going to be able to. And 
I knew for me that if I went backwards, that would be failure for me. And that I had to like burn my boats and make it like I had no choice but to, to make it. And that worked for me. Equally, there's loads of people that hold down a part-time job whilst they're starting up their business and that works for them. But without the action, none of that stuff is going to come true. Like, and also, I wouldn't want it to. I would want to feel like I earned that. Not that it fell out of the sky, like, because I sat at home on the couch thinking about it. So I think when neuroscience informs visualization and the law of attraction, it gives you autonomy. It puts you in the driver's seat. If, you know, the ways that it was explained before through vibrations and um, the universe basically makes you like a passive, you know, part of that story. And that's not for me. And, you know, I, I think it has had some good effects for some people, but for me, I wouldn't want it that way. I can't imagine you would either. No, no. not at all. Which is why I've always been reluctant to do like vision boards and things mm. like that because I always felt like it was setting people up for failure. Whereas, like, well, hang on a minute, I'm visualizing it and nothing's happening. And I'm so action oriented that the way you just broke it down was freaking amazing. <laughs> like, I've never heard it been broken down like that before. <laughs> and it makes complete sense to me. And so now again, I'm like, oh, okay, now that I get it and it doesn't feel abstract, yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do an action board. I can't wait to hear if you I do. I know. Um, the action board in my head is, it's always been like more goals, like, okay, I want to reach this, but I've mm -hmm. never done like an actual, like print out or cut out, um, way of doing it. Um, so thank you for breaking that down. You can do a list as well. In fact, this year I've done a list. Mm. I, I've, I've heard of people saying it before and I've always, I've done like 15 vision boards in the last 15 years, but for some reason this year I thought well, I'm going to try a list and see what happens. So I'll also update you on that. Yeah, because I assume, though, that like a vision board with photos, like I, I'm mm. such a visual person mm. and the act of like cutting things mm. out and like it makes you much instead of like what you were saying, like pa yeah. instead of being passive, it actually makes you much more um, connected to that. that yeah, vision. because it's tactile mm -hmm. and it's color and vision. So I've always said that's the reason to do a vision board. And all of that is in my book, The Source. Um but I also like to change things and try things. So having had a lot of success with vision boards, I'm just experimenting with a list now, partly so that I can share if like how it mm. panned out. Yeah. yeah. And then also even with lists, like I've, I've had a lot of um, interviews or I've interviewed a lot of people who are therapists or in the relationship realm. And a lot of what they say is like, write down what you want that person to be. Not like I want him to look like Brad Pitt, but yeah. I want him to be <laughs> kind, yeah. generous, oh, yeah. giving. And if yeah. you write those things down, it's now giving you that connection between when you meet them, mm. you start to recognize mm -hmm. versus like, oh my God, he's so handsome. Mm. So I absolutely do that work with people and my friends as well, which is the, the qualities of the person mm, that you want to meet mm -hmm. on a list. Um, but I add something to that, which is ask yourself if you are all of those things. That's so powerful. Yeah. I love And it. then work on that because that's the thing you can absolutely influence. Meeting that person, you can. there's a lot of things you can do to try and make that more likely, but you can't absolutely influence that. But the one thing you can do is make sure that you're kind, you're generous, you're giving mm-hmm um we cannot leave without going back to the thing that we said about an hour ago about the microbiome and your partner i'm just like going to geek out over again explain that to me 
and why that matters and why it's important and then how we can use that to empower ourselves. Yeah, so so the so the fact factoid that you're referring to is that your microbiome is affected by your partner or the person that you live people that you live with. And that is because we don't just have a gut microbiome, we have an oral microbiome, which is in our mouth, and a skin microbiome, which is all over our skin. Um, and interestingly, your oral microbiome actually affects your lung function quite strongly because they're close to each other in this area. Um, so, you know, that's to do with brushing your teeth and flossing and mm. um, all of it is to do with not taking antibiotics and processed food and stress and stuff like that. But yeah, so the, the people whose skin you touch, the people that you kiss, the people that you have sex with, um, the people that you sleep next to at night, the people that you eat with, share your crockery and cutlery with, share your bathroom with, share your towels with, all of that is causing an interaction between your microbiomes. Um, and what tends to happen is that the microbiome goes down a gradient. So the person with the healthier microbiome will be donating cells to the person with the less healthy mm. microbiome. So when I was speaking to a professor who's an expert on this, he said, well, you know, watch out that you're not meeting somebody with a less healthy microbiome than yours, because then you'll be losing. And I said, I'd probably be quite happy to donate some microbiome cells to the person that I love. Mm. Um, you know, so <laughs> I guess it depends which way you want to approach it. But yeah, so it will tend to go from the healthier to the less healthy and then like kind of bring you all onto the, you too or your family onto the same level. So is that another reason if you're around somebody or you live someone that is like in chronic stress and um, would depression be the same then? Um, depression has a, a connection to your gut microbiome. Yeah. So it changes. It's two way, right? So um, your mood impacts your gut microbiome, but the healthiness and diversity of your gut microbiome also impacts your mood. Mm -hmm. um, so not so much really people that you work with or hang around with, but definitely people that you live with will have an impact. Because, um, and now I don't want to totally derail, but I find this stuff so fascinating. Yeah. Um, when I had just such bad gut issues, um, at the time, one of the only ways they, would, they thought that they could help me, like solve me, was to have a fecal transplant. Yeah. And then I just did a lot of research because I was like, oh God, that sounds terrible. But hey, I don't try to, I literally try not to shut myself off to any mm. advice. I try to do my research, figure it out, and then see if it makes sense. And then in that research, I'd heard that if you get a fecal transplant from someone that is depressed, you are actually m way more likely to become depressed yourself. Not more likely. You will become depressed. I wasn't sure if I could like make a bold <laughs> statement like that. So in the rodent studies, where they took literally poo from depressed mice and injected it into healthy mice, the mice became depressed and vice versa. Yeah, that's crazy. And so I want to bring it round to really understanding why this is so important is I really do think like if you're in a relationship with somebody is you know, um, chronically de uh, stressed out, mm -hmm. um, that will have an impact on you. And then I assume then that's going to have an impact on your relationship. Mm. Um, and then the same with, um, yeah, if you're like, if you, if your microbiome is just all out of whack or your partner's is that that also will have an effect on your relationship. But remember what we said about, I know we talked about meeting people at the level of your psychological wounds, but it's, it's at every level, it's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, mm. right? Because if you or I suddenly started dating someone that was chronically stressed, 
I don't really think that relationship could last. Mm. So I think a really good question to ask yourself is, if your partner is chronically stressed, and obviously, you know, you can see some symptoms of having a deranged gut microbiome, what's that saying about you? And what do you need to do to make yourself healthy? And if you do, might that mean that you're not going to stay in that relationship? And is maybe that fear holding you back? Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we don't want to shine our light because we're afraid of what that might mean. Because it might mean then that the relationship's not going to... I mean, you do know the statistic about if a wife starts earning more than her husband, the divorce rate goes up. Why is that? Unfortunately, I think it's still because the stereotype in society is that the man needs to be the breadwinner and it's quite difficult for that to be tolerated. Mm. Um, so I do think there is an element there of if you repair yourself, whether it's physically or emotionally, what that might mean about, you know, oh, what I falls what by the saying. wayside. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Tara, I can... I can literally sit here and just pick your brain for hours. This has been so it's been damn so fun. fun. Yeah. Where can people find you and everything that you're doing? Thank you so much. I just want to say that you have definitely brought things out of me that I haven't said ah. before. So you're an amazing interviewer. Um, <laughs> I'm most active on Instagram where I'm Dr. Tara Swart, D-R-T-A-R-A-S-W-A-R-T. I have my podcast, Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara um, and my book, The Source. <laughs>